Hello, and welcome to this podcast from Consider This. Please let me know what you think and tell others about us on social media. This podcast was originally broadcast live on Northumberland 89.7 FM. You can hear this show live every Friday at noon. Thank you for downloading this program, and I hope you enjoy it. Hello, I'm Robert Washburn, and welcome to Consider This Northumberland, a current affairs program dedicated to the issues facing our community. We talk to the people on the front lines and those behind the scenes who make a difference in your life in Northumberland County. So I'm asking you, the listener, to take some time out of your busy day to consider this. Last week, there were interviews with the county officials about what was happening at 600 William Street. You heard from a person who was living in the encampment. But what is it like from the perspective of an individual trying to give support to those who are living rough? Missy McLean is a social worker for the Northumberland Legal Center specializing in tenant issues. She is also a community organizer working on harm reduction for people struggling with addictions. She has worked directly with Virginia Bailey and other people at the encampment from the very start. Her efforts will provide yet another view of what has unfolded and what needs to be done. I'm pleased to have back once more on Consider This Northumberland, Missy McLean, a social worker for the Northumberland Community Legal Center and a community organizer. Welcome back, Missy McLean. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me back. Have you been involved with any of the people who are living in the encampment in Coburg? Yes. For how long? Um... So, I mean, a lot of the folks who are living at the encampment, I've been connected with in community, some of them for years uh, in different ways. Um, but the the connections and support that I'm involved with right now in terms of their sheltering and, and establishment of this encampment, I would say really kicked off July 28th. I would say July 28th is sort of, I would put that as, as sort of the origin of a lot of what's happened in the last few weeks. Tell me about July 28th and why that date is significant. Yeah. So July 28th is the date when a number of service providers and, um, uh, you know, a fire, um, public health, uh, town officials, um, went, you know, did a second inspection. They did a first inspection on July 27th and then did a second inspection of 413 Division Street, which is an address um, that's been in the news because of this um, inspection and subsequent um, determination by the health unit that this was, um, there was an accumulation of raw sewage in the basement, they said, that was likely to have an adverse effect on the health of those living within the premises. And so they condemned the building and displaced the people who were living there. In what capacity were you involved in that then? Sure, I was first called in my capacity as a community organizer and in in relation to the relationships I have with the folks who live at 413 Division or who were living at 413 Division. Um, but then I also um, put on my 
my social worker hat in connection with my work at the legal center, because we, you know, one of the things that the legal center does is tenants rights. The lawyers and the community legal workers who are staffed there support tenants. And so I recognized immediately that this was a tenants issue and that they would need legal advice and support. And so I called my colleague um, from the legal center to come down to observe what was happening and to offer legal advice and information to the tenants as they were being displaced. These two hats that you talk about, that you wear, the one with this so as a social worker and the other one as a community organizer, can you explain the different roles and what it is exactly you do in each of those roles when you're working with different people? I mean, there's a lot of overlap between the two. Um, social work is a really diverse field. So it involves a bunch of things. It involves like on the ground support and, and offering, you know, some of the work that I do is specifically around supporting survivors of gender-based violence in navigating the family law system and the, and the criminal legal system. But it also involves, you know, system navigation, um, uh, crisis intervention, um, supportive counseling. So this is this sort of overlaps with the work that I do when I'm, you know, in community, just as as a community member, I would say, right? Like as a member of the public who's connecting with folks and um, and being an ally for folks who are marginalized and um, struggling. So when you got the call and you you came, explain what unfolded from your perspective. Sure. So what I was observing was a coordinated um, plan being executed by a number of entities from the town. So that was fire, you know, the fire inspector was there, the fire chief was there, police were there, the health unit was there, um, members of bylaw, I believe, were there as well for the town. Um, and this was a coordinated plan to uh, deem this premises in, uninhabitable. Um, there was a school bus waiting in the parking lot across the street to take tenants to a hotel that had been arranged for 72 hours of accommodations for folks through the Red Cross um, uh, emergency assistance um, program. And people were, be giving, were being given one hour to collect their belongings and to get on the bus if they chose to, to be taken out of Coburg to a hotel for 72 hours accommodation. How would you have described the atmosphere within the home while these things were unfolding and things were moving forward? Chaotic and traumatic. Explain that, please. Um, this came, this displacement from their homes came as uh, they were blindsided, was my observation. The tenants, um, you know, the, the building was not in good condition. Uh, but up to that point, there had been no conversation with the tenants about, to my understanding, about, you know, um, the, the possibility that they would be displaced from their home, where they pay rent, where they live. And then suddenly they were being told that they had to pack all of their things. They had one hour to gather as much as they could and they could get on the bus to go to a hotel in a neighboring town. Um, 
but either way they had to get out of their home. Did you stay in contact with these people after they were in the hotel? Yes. And how did things unfold from that point forward? So the folks who took the bus ride to the hotel in Port Hope arrived there and, and then they had no idea what was happening next. There was no communication about what would happen after 72 hours was over and they had to leave the hotel. There was no conversation about where they were supposed to live if their home was still deemed uninhabitable after 72 hours. There was no conversation about how were they going to get back to Coburg with all of their belongings. People were confused. Um, you know, some folks who lived there uh, were completely, dis I would say they were completely destabilized by this, this disruption to their daily life. They had a home and then all of a sudden they were told they couldn't live there anymore and they were taken to a, another town and then that was it. How did they get from the hotel then to living on the West Beach? Do you know how that unfolded? Yeah. Yeah, I helped bring people um, in my own vehicle back to Coburg, the tenants who were living there. Um, some other communities helped with coordinating to help people come back to Coburg. And then there was discussion by the tenants and the other. So, and I have to say, so when we talk about tenants at 413 Division, there were the tenants who were on, you know, paper. And then there were a whole bunch of other folks who depended on the people who lived there to allow them to stay there and to shelter as well. So while it might have been on paper that there were four, you know, or five tenants, the reality was that there were upwards of 20 people in this community, I would say, who depended on that place to shelter on a, on a nightly basis. Um, and so the tenants, you know, formal and informal of that address, once it was determined that like, okay, nobody, nobody's coming to save us. No one's coming to provide us with a new shelter now that they've told us we can't live in our home. Uh, and they decided that, yeah, they, they had to find another way to shelter and that was going to be intense. And so they decided to um, form an, an encampment together to provide safety and community because there's safety in numbers. Um, and that's how that, uh, the encampment at the West Beach came about, is my understanding. Now, the Northumberland Community Legal Center, I know, offers advice and advocates on behalf of tenants. What, if anything, did you or the legal center do to advocate for these people to have shelter? Um, so, I mean, I'll talk about the social work side of what I was a part of. Um, and the advocacy there. So advocating for, you know, mo motel rooms or hotel rooms to be provided for the folks who had been living at 413 Division and had been di displaced. Um, 
I tried to advocate for that. Um, the only sheltering option that was provided uh, was for folks to go to transition house. Um, there wasn't, you know, enough space for everybody who had been sheltering at 413 Division to go to transition house, but that was the option that was given to people. And so I tried to advocate for alternative options, recognizing that transition house is not an appropriate or accessible option for everybody. Um, and then uh, our oh, one of the members of the legal team at the uh, legal center was doing a lot of work around, you know, trying to trying to communicate with um, the town uh, about, you know, the rights of tenants and the rights of folks to shelter, you know, their charter rights. So um, before we get down too far down that path, I, I'd like to just go back for a second. And when you were advocating, who are you advocating to? And what were some of the, you mentioned you were trying to advocate for different alternatives. What were some of those alternatives that you were advocating for? So to whom and what were the uh, options that you were trying to get? Well, the immediate one was trying to advocate for hotel rooms. And that advocacy was done first to management at Transition House because they are the central intake point for housing and homelessness supports for folks. And they run the shelter overflow program that sees some folks uh, sheltered in hotel or so motel rooms in the community when there isn't enough room at the house. Um, and then also just trying to figure out like when would this when would this home be made available again to the tenants who were paying rent and and had been displaced from there. You mentioned that the legal center was looking at uh, some. Uh, rights issues and exploring those. Uh, how much can you elaborate upon that? Not a ton. I like to leave the legal discussion for the lawyers and the legal workers. Okay. Um, yeah. What What we're referring to, though, is something that's been bantered around in the public realm called the Waterloo decision. Is that what we're talking about when we're we're discussing this? Yes, it is. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, and the Waterloo decision, so, you know, this is a, a decision that came out of a court there that basically determined that when there is an encampment in a community, those residents can't be evicted from that encampment unless alternate accessible uh, accommodation can be provided. Um, and, and moving people along, dismantling encampments without providing accessible alternative accommodation is a, has been deemed to be a violation of those community members charter rights under section 7 which is the you know the right to life liberty and security of the person so now there's this encampment down on the west beach when you are talking to the various people in the encampment what do they tell you that they are looking for and from whom I mean, ultimately, folks are looking for permanent housing, appropriate housing. But we know that doesn't exist right now in our community. Um, yeah, that's what they're looking for. They're looking for a they're looking for housing, permanent housing. They're also looking, I think, just in you know, in my conversations and my observations, they're looking to be. Um, recognized and treated as valuable 
members of this community, members who have rights, members who um, are deserving of dignity and respect and support um, rather than as, as a nuisance or undesirable or folks that you know um, aren't welcome or don't belong here. How often did you have contact with them during their time on the West Beach? pretty much on a daily basis. And when you were down there, not just talking to the people in the encampment, what was your sense of the the public's uh, reaction to this uh, uh, as as people were, say, going by or being around that? What, what was your sense of that? It really varied. It was interesting to see the different reactions that people had. Um, you know, some folks expressed, you know, sentiments of solidarity and an understanding that, you know, this is sort of where we have ended up as a community based on a whole whack of factors. Um, and so some folks understood that. Um, and then there were folks who expressed contempt, uh, anger, disdain, yeah, it really varied. I know there's a lot of laws around privacy, but can you share any of the background of these people who are living in the encampment? Do you know how long some of them have been without permanent shelter? Can you tell us a bit about them? Yeah, I mean, it, it really varies. Again, I mean, if we're talking about some of the residents were not unhoused up until uh, you know, the better part of a month ago when they were displaced from their home. Um, some people have been, I would say, you know, what we refer to as sort of um, invisible homelessness, right? Where folks don't have a permanent address or um, a secure housing situation, but they get by by staying on folks' couches, um, you know, sleeping, you know, yeah, sleeping in people's, you know, living rooms, kitchens, um, making making do that way. And then there are folks who have been homeless for a long time. Maybe they've been in and out of the shelter system, um, or they've been tenting for a while as well. You know, if any of them are facing challenges like mental health or addictions? Yeah, yeah. Can you talk a bit about that and help us better understand when we talk about these things? I mean, they get those terms get thrown around a lot, but talk a bit about what what it is they're actually facing. Well, I it's really complex and it's so individual to each person. Um, you know, there are people who are struggling. Yeah, I mean, people who are struggling with their mental health. And that's deeply connected to their experience of systemic violence, and, right? And systemic, you know, this this uh, structured abandonment of them as low-income folks or people, you know, who um, are are living in poverty or people who have, yeah, a disability, people who have um, struggles with substance use or have some sort of diagnosis of a of a mental illness, maybe. It's really varied. And there are folks, you know, where like their main struggle, I think for the folks that I know right now, the main struggle of living homeless in connection with their mental health 
is the awareness of how much the system uh, disregards their life right now and the way that the um the you know members of the community don't don't see them as members of the community they're othered and that has a real impact on people's mental health what if anything is being done to support these people facing these hurdles what are you aware of um so i would first name the community building and solidarity that exists within the community of encampment residents. Um, people, you know, encampments in this area are new, um, but there are a lot of strengths that exist when people live in an encampment. Um, encampments can be more trauma-informed than some of the formalized shelters that exist because people can choose who they neighbor with at an encampment. Um, they can have a lot more say in um, their living conditions and sort of how things are navigated. When you go into a shelter, you don't get a choice about who you are sleeping next to. Um, so there are strengths in that. There's safety in numbers, right? That having that sense of community, people who are tenting and homeless, isolation is a real uh, reality for them. And so being part of a community within an encampment is a strength for them not feeling alone, feeling like they have folks that they can count on to support them, to help, um, to share some of the load in terms of like cooking and um, coordination of, of things like that. Um, then there are, I would say that this next sort of circle of support would be community-based allies. So members of the community, other residents who are most, for the most part are housed, um, and have developed relationships with folks in the encampment and are in constant connection with them, offering all kinds of different kinds of support, like material, like survival gear, um, just relationships and sitting with people and having conversations with folks and um, showing up for people in that way, helping with transportation, getting to and from appointments, um, helping people get to the hospital, helping with wound care, um, all of those pieces. And then outside of that, I would say are the, the formalized uh, services and supports provided by say like the county, um, not so much the town, but the county and, and different um, social service organizations in the community. I'd like to come back to some of those in just a minute, but before we go there, I guess the next thing I'd like to talk about is the move from the West Beach to 600 William Street. Now, in an interview with Victoria Bailey, one of the people living in the encampment, she described the move as being deliberate. She and the others wanted to be on municipally owned property. Now, I understand the group does have a lawyer. and We've spoken a little bit about that as well. Can you help listeners appreciate why it is it significant that the group is taking these deliberate steps and working with a lawyer to be located where they are now. Sure. So there were there were a couple of things happened in the lead up to the move, the dismantling of the encampment at the West Beach, and the move up to 600 William. That weekend before this happened, there was a big storm that came through town, and it did a real number on the encampment. People's campsites were decimated. And so what happened over that weekend were about 18 members of that community at the encampment at the West Beach 
um, were helped to get humanitarian aid and move to hotels through the Red Cross program. Community member um, Rob Horgan was one of the main um, uh, coordinators of that effort. Who He recognized the destruction that had happened at this West Beach encampment and said, these folks need help. They need humanitarian aid and help and work to coordinate to have residents provided uh, temporary uh, shelter at a hotel it ended up being in Peterborough because the hotel in Port Hope that it was initially booked uh, denied the encampment residents um, rooms. They turned them away when they showed up to, um, to check in. Uh, so people went up to Peterborough. So there was a community coordinated effort to assist with transportation. People got up there. They were able to access healthcare and different things while they were in Peterborough. And then a coordination of efforts on the part of community to bring people back to Coburg after the 72 hours was there. And during that weekend, there were a lot of conversations about, okay, is this site at the West Beach the best site from like a, you know, exposure to the elements, uh, safety, privacy, and also the legal component of like, where, where can folks shelter right now? And also, invoke, you know, what was determined through the Waterloo decision. And so after a lot of discussion and evaluation of different possibilities, the encampment uh, community members and residents determined that 600 William was where they wanted to go next. And so that move happened. And yeah, when Virginia said that it was um, strategic and uh, coordinated, it absolutely was, yeah. County officials have said in a press release last month that they are working with mental health workers from the Northumberland Hills Hospital and the Coburg Police HARP unit. Are you aware of this and how are they working? What are you witnessing in terms of supports for these people? So I know that there have been meetings called bringing together a bunch of the different uh, services and supports in the community to talk about how to best serve and support the residents of the encampment. And I am seeing um, those workers um, and members of those different organizations on site at the encampment, um, you know, being there to check in with folks about what are their immediate needs. Um, I'm not sure what else is being offered in this moment, but um, that is something I'm seeing that didn't happen when people were displaced from 413 division. No one came to see folks at the hotel when they were displaced. And so it is um, great to see the service providers and the different outreach teams and, and workers now on site at the encampment at 600 William. In a recent interview on the show, county officials said they are dealing with each person individually and trying to address their challenges. What are you hearing and experiencing when you are on site and talking with people living in the encampment? Yeah, it's a tall order, right? There's a lot of people. When I was there this morning, there were about 20 people, 20 residents at the encampment, and that number fluctuates and can go up to as high as 30. Some folks are camping on site. Some folks are camping elsewhere, but they come to have meals at the encampment site. Um, it's sort of a centralized gathering space for folks who are um, sleeping rough in the community. I'm not 
I'm not hearing like a lot of the specifics of what's happening. And I think that's for a bunch of reasons. And one of the main reasons is for all of their um, good work and desire to support people, the people who work for these different organizations, the outreach workers, the housing workers, et cetera, they're stuck too, because they don't have, imagine like the, you know, the frustration of your job is to help people get housed and there's literally no housing. How do you do your job? So it's not even on the outreach workers, you know, that they're not able to house people quickly. They want to, um, they would if they could, the stock doesn't exist. Or if the stock exists, it's not affordable. And so there has to be a bigger shift because what's available to the, the service agencies and the workers who are working to support people, it, it, it's not enough. And that's not on those workers. They're just working within the means that they have access to. And in this moment, they don't have access to what they need to actually help people move into appropriate, affordable, accessible housing. County believes its approach has netted results. You've talked a lot about how it works and whether it's working or not. But overall, what's your assessment of how effective the county has been in its response to the encampment? I think that the county was caught flat-footed. And I mean, the CAO and the director of social services in their conversation with you last week talked about how they were blindsided by some of the actions taken by the town of Coburg. And so, you know, I feel for, for them in that respect, right? Uh, there's a lot of talk about how coordination of efforts, communication, all of these things are so key to how people are working in this space. And so for the service provider to be caught blindsided by a big action taken by one of the lower tier municipalities, like that's that's not a helpful, I would imagine that wasn't a helpful uh, process. Virginia Bailey said in a recent interview that something has to be done soon. With the cold weather coming, she predicted someone is going to die. What is your assessment? My assessment is that Virginia knows a lot more than us so-called professionals about what the realities are on the ground for folks who are marginalized and who are sleeping rough and who are struggling. And if her assessment is that there is an imminent risk of losing another member of our community because of their exposure to the elements, the inadequacy of healthcare and housing and supports for folks who are marginalized, then I, I believe her and I agree with her. What needs to be done to address the needs of those in the encampment that can be done immediately? Do you see any quick fixes or low hanging fruit that can be taken advantage of? Yeah, I think the the lowest hanging fruit is engaging with the residents in a meaningful way and inviting them to the table. I love the idea of a coordination of efforts on the part of service providers 
but they didn't invite the people who actually live in the encampment to the table, right? There is an adage amongst people, mostly amongst um, people who use drugs, but also people, you know, from the disabilities uh, movement, right? Disability justice movement says nothing about us without us. If you want to help people and you want to work with people and support people, don't talk about them without them in the room. They are the experts in their own experience. So one of the lowest hanging fruits would be to actually invite the residents of the encampment to participate in those meetings. Don't have separate meetings without them, have them in the room. As well, there wasn't an invitation extended to the community members, right? The, the, the non-professionals, but the, they're the ones who have been most connected and in relationship and listening to and supporting and working with the, resident, the residents of the encampment. Where was their invitation to the table? I'm slowly starting to see conversations starting to happen, but that should have happened from the beginning. And it needs to be happening now in a much more intentional way. That would, I think, expedite things because why not, why have this like middle, it's not even a middleman at this um, gap in communication where it's like broken telephone. It's like, what do the residents tell, you know, the work and then they go back and they talk about them. No, bring them all into the room. Listen to the residents. They'll tell you what they need. They'll tell you what works what doesn't work, what feels safe, what doesn't feel safe. Give people choices, involve them in the process. That, that's what I would love to see happen right away. There is a lot of public discourse taking place about this situation. What are some of the biggest myths about the encampment that you feel need to be corrected? Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, what are the myths that people, I would love to hear from people, what are the myths that people are upholding about the encampment? I guess that the encampment somehow makes the community less safe. That's the big, I hear, I hear a lot of conversations about safety. And if we look at who has been the target of violence, in this community, it's been the residents of the encampment. They're the ones who have been experiencing violence targeted at them. And, you know, with no offering of crisis support or intervention. Um, so yeah, that, quite, that myth of like, whose safety is actually at risk, whose safety is actually compromised when an encampment exists. Um, it's not all the folks who have homes to go to and close a door and lock it. It's the people who are, all they have between them and the outside world is a very thin tent. So I think that's the myth that um, I would love to dispel for folks right now is who actually is, whose safety is actually compromised in this moment when people don't have access to real housing. I'm sure there's some listeners who would be saying, but it was at the encampment that there was a shooting. That mm -hmm. is a very large sign of, of a, an increase in the lack of safety. I, I mean, we haven't had a public shooting in I don't know how many years. 
So when you mention that, does it not make sense? I guess some people would be saying, you know, that that's a sign that this encampment has brought uh, some public safety concerns to the fore. We can unpack this. It's a, it's not, it's complicated. Do we want to talk about it? <laughs> right? So there was a shooting. Someone fired a gun at the encampment when folks were sleep, were staying at the West Beach. Who was the target? The residents of the encampment. Whose safety was at risk? The residents of the encampment. Um, there has been a, you know, a crackdown. There's, there's a whole bunch of factors here, Rob, right? So there's been a real crackdown on um, the criminalized drug trade in this community. And when the, when the street drug supply is interrupted by enforcement, it creates a vacuum where people are going to start to jockey for control of, of territory, right? And so what I imagine, and I don't, I don't. So you're not talking from firsthand knowledge here. You're just talking in generalities. Am I understanding I'm that correctly? I'm talking in generalities about what goes on, you know, and, and I want to be clear that not everyone who is homeless uses criminalized drugs. Not everyone who lives in an encampment uses criminalized drugs. Um, but people who live in encampments become targets. They become targets for exploitation, right? For, um, for all kinds of power dynamics to be flexed because they're exposed. And so if we're thinking about a, a gun going off in proximity to the encampment, I just want people to really reflect on who were the targets of that action. The folks who live in the encampment experienced a traumatic act of violence directed at them. They were, you know, moved out of where they were living from the encampment and then they were told they could come back imagine coming back to your tent after someone has fired a gun in proximity to where you are sheltering and all you have between you and the outside world is a tent and then having to try to sleep that night in the same location where someone had just discharged a weapon um the folks who are living in the encampment are the vulnerable members of this community in this moment. They're the ones who are at highest risk of violence and targeting. Um, and so if people wanna make connections about safety, whose safety are we centering? Whose safety are we talking about? That's what, that's what I just wanted to sort of draw to, right? Is like people who are unhoused are vulnerable and their safety is at risk. And that gets lost in the conversation. Someone discharged a, a weapon at the encampment. How many crisis workers were brought down to support and provide supportive counseling and traumatic you know, crisis counseling for the residents at the encampment? Zero. 
None. I want to shift gears here. What, if any, are some of the positives or takeaways related to this encampment from the past few weeks for you? I think the, the strength of community and the connection that exists between members of the community. Um, you know, you spoke to Virginia um, and Chris, I think, right? Two members of the encampment community. Um, I think a lot about the care that they provide for folks who are also living at the encampment. Um, I think about, a lot about like the coordination of like meals for everybody sharing of resources, sharing of survival gear, um, and that really beautiful sense of community and, and collaboration to keep each other safe. The folks who are living in the encampment, they know it's been made pretty clear to them. Again, like I said earlier, no one's coming to save them. They have to save themselves in this moment. They have to figure out how they're gonna survive in this moment and they're doing that together. And that's my biggest takeaway is the strength that that takes. You know, when you are living in the elements, when you are living in poverty, when you are the target of physical violence, structural violence, um, all of these things, and you can still find ways to take care of each other, that is a strength that I reflect on a lot. If people listening are concerned and want to help, what would you suggest they do? There's a lot of information out there about encampments, about the Waterloo decision, about the housing crisis. You know, how, um, one of the things that we're talking about at the legal center right now is working on a public event that would be focused on sort of trying to answer the question of how did we get here? What are all of the elements that have have that have been involved in bringing us to this point where we see an encampment in Coburg? Um, right? What happens when municipalities uh, don't hold landlords accountable for maintaining their buildings and keeping them in good repair? What happens when we don't have rent control? Right? There's a um, an outreach worker in Toronto who I I learned a lot from her name's Lorraine Lamb and she just summed it up really nicely. It said higher rents equals more tents. And that's what we're seeing here in Coburg. Um, so really just, you know, if people are, are curious, if people are scared, um, look into credible resources, check your sources, make sure you're learning from credible sources about the housing crisis, about encampments and what's what's being done in other communities like Hamilton has been doing some really progressive work right now um Peterborough you know we we had an or a group trying to pilot sleeping cabins in this community that was struck down twice by council um we're seeing similar initiatives have success and actually moving forward in other communities like Peterborough and Hamilton um so yeah looking at that and then there's a great um group in the community called the community connectors and they're a group of residents who have just come together and they are 
supporting and working alongside residents of the encampment and other marginalized community members in all kinds of ways. And so people feel compelled to get involved in that kind of way to actually like take action, um, then reaching out to that group could be a good step too. Missy McLean, I want to thank you so much for talking to me today. Thanks for having me, Rob. That was Missy McLean, a social worker for the Northumberland Community Legal Center and a community organizer. As of deadline, the status of Virginia Bailey and the others is unconfirmed. Attempts were made to reach both Virginia and Missy McLean. As you can appreciate, they are reacting to unfolding events. Please check the website for this program to get updates. I want to thank my guests this week for talking to me, and I want to thank all the listeners for tuning in today. Please join me again next week when we will talk to the people on the front lines and those behind the scenes who make a difference in your life and Northumberland County. So please tune in. If you would like to listen or share this or any podcast, please check out my website at consider-this.ca. There you will find past podcasts, news, and other information about life and politics in Northumberland County. Or you can go to the radio station's website at northumberland897.ca. I'm Robert Washburn. Thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in, and I hope over the week you will continue to consider this. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Consider This. If you have any comments or would like to suggest a story, please contact me at considerthisnorthumberland at gmail.com or you can message me on Facebook at Consider This. If you enjoyed this podcast or are looking for more news and information about Northumberland County, please check out my website at consider-this.ca. That's consider-this.ca. And don't forget to share. And again, thank you for listening and stay tuned for more from Consider This.